Lightning opens up interesting things. If you're a programmer in a country, you, you can now get international payments directly from them without going through that their country's banking system. It's basically peer-to-peer finance. And then they have a, a unit that is hard. It is harder than their local currency. Basically, it connects global labor, global work, global productivity in a way that, that didn't exist before. Hello there. How are you all doing? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I'm using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I've got an interview with the legendary Lynn Alden, where we're going to be discussing why Bitcoin is the best monetary network and why it scales so well. So while we were in New York a couple of months ago, Lynn told me about a Lightning Network article that she was writing and I knew we had to get her on to discuss it. The article examines the relationship between a monetary asset being a store of value versus being a medium of exchange, and the paper just dropped. So make sure you head out to the show notes, check out the article itself, as it's a bit of a banger. As ever, Lynn brings fire on the subject, so I think there's plenty to gain from this discussion for both those who aren't familiar with the Lightning Network and those who are active users. Anyway, if you've got any questions about this, Anything else, please feel free to get in touch. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com and I do try and reply to everyone. Morning, Lynn. <laughs> Morning. Afternoon. Fuck. Uh, I'm not going to do how are you because we've already had a session. People would already have listened to that show. Um, we're going to talk about the Lightning Network. You are working on a big paper. Is this going to be one of your epic 18,000 word things? pretty long. I'm working on an article on it. I, I've touched on it in prior articles, but I feel like it does not get enough attention outside of the Bitcoin ecosystem. So Bitcoiners obviously know about Lightning, but it's still very under the radar for macro investors and the general public. So I'm trying to just explain how it works and why it's interesting and what problems it solves. And it feels to me a bit, little bit like uh, you're getting really sucked into the Bitcoin rabbit hole. You said something recently that maybe it was even when we were together in New York where you said... I'm less interested in making money on Bitcoin. Like, I don't really care about that. I'm really interested in what it brings and the kind of the Bitcoin revolution, what the technology does. And it feels like, as an outsider observing, you're getting really sucked into this. I think that's because of years of analysis. It keeps pointing to the fact that money is broken for yep. a lot of people. I mean, really for the whole world, but more for some people than others. And so, a, a credible solution that can improve that. I think it's really important. So I, I think it's one of the more important projects that someone could work on. Right. Okay. So let's touch on money is broken for the people who don't know. The quick, well, they should listen to the previous show because we covered it there. But the quick TLDR on why money is broken and why you are so drawn to Bitcoin as a potential solution. So I would say it goes back to the initial problem we discussed in, in a prior interview where the speed of commerce is different than the speed of, of hard money like gold. So, so once we basically develop telecommunications channels and we could, you know, send money globally, ledger to ledger, the whole euro dollar system, um, we had this big abstraction between, you know, abstractions for gold and gold itself. And then you can centralize gold and then you could, you could drop gold altogether and have a, a fiat-based system. So one problem is that we have an inflationary system uh, and that's problematic enough in developed countries, but let alone in you know, smaller and, and more developing countries, they have much higher inflation levels on average. And usually within a lifetime, they experience a hyperinflation and they just lose their savings if they were holding that, that currency. So that's number one is all the inflationary angle. And then number two is the fact that it's all, it's mostly permissioned. Um, and so you need permission from your bank to do things. Um, and that can, again, in some countries, that gets pretty benign. 
and in other countries that are that are more authoritarian. And according to you know um, estimates from like Freedom House, the way they you know depict it, about half the world lives under something that's classified as authoritarian or semi-authoritarian. Yep. So permission systems are obviously a big problem in that regard. And so the combination of not having developed savings and payments technology that's pretty open and having inflationary currencies is really bad for a lot of people around the world. Right, okay. Well, when you talk to people about uh, some of the uh, historians on money, they talk about the, the lifespan of a currency and it starts as a collectible, then it becomes a... Uh, store of value, then a media exchange, and then a unit of account. That's that's the kind of journey we're going on, and, and we're going on that same journey with Bitcoin. And these these periods, the transitional periods, that they're, they're not completely, they're not like hardlined changes. Yeah. Uh, Bitcoin is arguably a medium of exchange because we know people use it, people spend it, but it's not used a lot as a medium of exchange. It's just a few kind of outlier cases. We. We have El Salvador now has the ability for anyone to do it, but I'm sure the numbers are pretty low. When you look at Bitcoin and you look at the lifestyle of a currency, where do you kind of see it? What 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 are the optimistic things for you? Well, I think what Satoshi invented was basically the the world's best ledger, right? So I, I think Darren Feinstein would call it triple entry bookkeeping. I think I think it was I was sat with John Pfeffer and he said Wences uh, orange pilled him on it. He said money is a ledger. And Bitcoin is the best ledger. Yes, that, that's the best way to describe it. Basically, you, I think the best way to describe money is it's either the most saleable good, uh, which is you know the kind of the more commodity-oriented view of money. And I think that's accurate. And another way to describe it is that it's ledgers, and usually ledgers correspond to commodity monies in history, um, but they don't have to. Uh, obviously, in the current era, and so in that sense, the best ledger, the one that that is you know you can't fudge the numbers. It's not opaque, right? And so the combination of the best ledger with a hard unit of account in that ledger system is a pretty marvelous revolution. Yeah. Uh, and that, that brings, you know, it's, it's basically faster than gold, um, but more audible and harder than fiat. And so it, it kind of acts as its own decentralized transfer agent and registrar, uh, which is just, it's a marvelous technology. And I think he's, he solved a lot of problems and it's still very early on in its testing and adoption phase. So, you know, initially it had some bugs. Uh, initially, cypherpunks were interested in it for what it could be. Uh, then you started to see practical use cases of people getting deplatformed or people want to buy things they're not supposed to. So for both good reasons and bad reasons, people saw this as permissionless, uh, you know, censorship-resistant medium of exchange. So actually pretty early on in its adoption cycle, it, it's, it's a medium of exchange was right there from the beginning. Yes. But it's not optimized for everyone just to buy coffee with it around the world, a billion transactions a second or whatever. It's not, that's not what it's meant for. It's meant for that censorship-resistant money that's kind of everybody's backup money if you get deplatformed or if you, if you need this in any way. And of course, we can build layers on top of it to also make it everyday money. Um, but I think that's the, the biggest thing, that it basically gave everyone the ability to have one portable money. So you can self-custody money and then even bring that globally, which is actually really hard to do with gold or cash or things like that. And the number two is that you can then do a transaction that is very hard to do block. And you were initially dismissive of Bitcoin, right? Like we all were. Yes. Um, I From the first time I heard about it, I thought it was cool. Like I never was like, oh, that's that's rubbish or that's bad. But I was like, why can't someone copy it? Why can't you know, like it seems neat, but I don't know how to price it. I didn't really fully get it. So I was always kind of like, I'm rooting for those guys, but I don't know. 
you know, so only after multiple encounters with it that I kind of fully look into it and realize that there's something more here that I was missing. And you feel like there's not enough now focus on lightning. We need to get a little bit more attention to it. At least, yeah, at least outside of the Bitcoin ecosystem. I think that, that there's very, there's still very little awareness of lightning, how it works, roughly what it means. Yeah. So if Bitcoin is the best ledger, then lightning is perhaps the best payments network in the world. And I think we should get into why that is because uh, the more I understand about Lightning, the more I understand about the traditional payment networks uh, and how they can stop or block transactions and the way they add fees. If Bitcoin had a dollar stablecoin on it, it would be a big threat, I think, to Visa and MasterCard for their debit networks. I, I think so. And especially, you know, the first couple years of Lightning is very low liquidity. Uh, but we've hit kind of a critical mass now where it's quite liquid and the wallet solutions and things like that are pretty good. So even though there's still work to be done, there's still limitations, there's still privacy improvements that can be made, this is a, now a very workable system with a very strong network effect. Um, and most macro kind of institutional size entities will dismiss it or not even have heard of it because, I mean, you know, total locked Bitcoin on it is, you know, a little over 4,000 Bitcoin, which as of today is something like, you know, $100 million dollars. It's, it's peanuts in, in the global scale. Um, but I think if you're looking at how it works and seeing that it gets better every year and you're seeing the growth rate and the rise in liquidity, um, I think we're, we're reaching that critical mass. I think we've reached it basically at the beginning of 2021 or so. And I think now we're firmly into the point where it's just increasingly usable system. Can you explain to me a little bit how the Visa and MasterCard network works and some of the inherent flaws in it that Bitcoin maybe solves. Sure. So Visa and MasterCard and payment systems like that are not settlement networks. You're not doing final settlement. They're, they're a layer on top of a layer on top of a layer. Another ledger. Yeah, it's another ledger. It's basically a way for banks to agree. And so Visa and MasterCard themselves don't carry debt. They're just operating the, 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 you know, the mechanism for banks to come to this consensus. And so when we, when we look at, say, the U.S. banking system, Oh, hold on a second. So that's kind of interesting. So they don't actually control any money. All they're doing is telling each bank what they what they have to settle with each other at the end of the day. They're basically an IT companies. Yeah. Huh. Whereas American Express and Discover, they are both those systems, but then they also are their own bank. So they actually they hold debt as well. Whereas Visa and Mastercard are are networks. So basically, a communication network for communicating what pe people owe each other. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Huh, I never knew that. I never thought of it like that. And so, when so, and how does that tend to work? Is there is it immediate settlement they're telling people, or is there end of day settlement that, you know, do they, I don't know, you've got two banks that say, well, you owe this one and you owe this one this, and they just settle. How does that actually work? It's changed a little bit over time as as settlements gotten a little bit faster. Um, so that that part is malleable, but it's not instant settlement. And basically, so there's a, you know, when a, when a bank issues a card. Yeah, they're the ones taking on on the risk, really, and so you have a you have that bank. You also have the merchants bank, yep. right? So you have both the cardholders bank, the merchants bank. You have the network in the middle. You have a bunch of of intermediaries along the way, and everyone has to get their fee, right? Hmm. So one, it's it's not a super low fee system. Mm -hmm. uh, it's 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 efficient. It's workable. A lot of times we happily use it instead of cash, but it's not a free system. There's there's pretty high fees, and then number two, they rely on settlement networks like Fedwire for the actual gross final settlement. So, you know, 
any given day, there's like countless millions of transactions and they're not actually sending money back and forth each time. They're kind of reconciling at the end of the day or every other day. It, it, it changes over time, but they're batching multiple transactions together into final settlements that happen over settlement networks like Fedwire. And so what did, what did Fedwire do itself? So Fedwire is operated by the, the Federal Reserve. Okay. And that is a gross interbank settlement system. So basically what that does is it handles a relatively small number of very large transactions, and that's final settlement. Final settlements between the banks, like leveling up what what, what banks yes. should have what at the end yes. of each day. And there are other systems, but that one's huge. Uh, and, that, and so roughly speaking, every year, uh, you know, you might have 200 million payments, which is not a lot for a whole economy the size of the United States, uh, but it settles hundreds of trillions of dollars worth of value because it's, it's gross value uh, and it's it's each transaction is is millions. And what what happens with the international transactions? How does that work? Is that a similar thing? They use they use Swift Swift system for communication, and then different heirs will have different settlement networks. Right, yes. like e equivalent to Fedwire. Yes. Okay. And in terms of the middlemen who are taking a little bit of a cut, who, who how many different people are taking a cut at this? Well, you're having the networks take a cut. So Visa and Mastercard take their cut. Yeah. Uh, and then you also have the merchant bank. So if I, if I have a credit card and I'm buying something from you, mm -hmm. um, your bank is taking a cut for accepting that card. Uh, and then my bank is, is taking a cut and then the network is taking a cut. So there's multiple people. There's a, you know, at least three parties along the way that are taking a cut. And as a percent of a transaction, do we know what that kind of comes with? Is it like 3%? It's like somewhere around 3%. It'll vary a little bit based on the network. Uh, but yeah, it's around 3%. So, yeah, I mean... So if you're spending hundreds of thousands of years as a uh, hundred thousand hundred thousand pounds as a business each year, you're paying thousands in fees. Yes, I mean the way it's normally instructed is that the merchant really is paying the fees. Okay. So the user is is not really paying the fees, and if anything, they're they're often getting rewards. Uh, yeah. That that entice people to use them, which entices merchants to accept them. But that's often why you'll see merchants have a lower price if you pay in cash. Because they're basically, if they accept cards, which they pretty much have to do if they yeah. really want to get most business, they're they're paying a pretty fat fee on that, and so that's really where the where the fee comes from. But of course, if the merchant's paying the fee, it really means that the, the price of their product has to be high enough to to take into account that fee. So the consumer is still paying it by paying slightly higher prices at the merchant. Yeah, well, I noticed with British Airways, they charge a different fee depending on the card issuer as well. I think Amex, you pay a higher higher fee. Yes. And also if it's a corporate debit card, you pay a higher fee. Yes. I've seen that as well. Huh. So where do you, what are the biggest flaws you see in the system outside of, I mean, firstly, it's expensive because of the fees. Are there other, any significant flaws? Well, two main flaws. One is that it is just a layer on top of a fiat currency system. Yep. So it's inflationary. And number two, it's permissioned. Sorry, it's, how is it inflationary? Well, because it's all based on moving dollars or euros or yen around. This is not, it's not its own unit of account. It's oh, just, right. Okay, it's a yeah. layer on top of a of the of an inflationary yes, system. Of an inflationary I, thought, system. I thought you meant the actual system itself is inflationary. Oh, no. Yeah, it's just moving around inflationary units. Yes. So that's, that's number one. And then number two is it's permissioned. It's a walled garden, basically, that you have to have access to. You have to be given access to it um, by financial institutions. And you can be removed from it. You can be removed from it either, uh, even from a top-down way. If you're in an authoritarian government, they can be like, you know, people that meet this criteria are not allowed to access banks. 
or you can be censored. Yes. Uh, I've had multiple sponsors I've worked with, one specifically where they, my bank would just not accept a payment from them. They wouldn't give a reason why, they just said, we are not taking this transaction. Yes. And then I also lost my, I lost my bank account with Wise because one of my sponsors is a crypto company. So they have rules that says we we won't uh, you can't deposit on exchanges and we won't take money that comes from exchanges. Okay, I don't agree with it, but I understand why. They've gone a step further now. They won't accept money from a crypto company um, in term as, as a sponsor, which is weird. So yeah. we're seeing more and more of that, and also we're seeing a lot more in terms of. I don't know if you've seen this, and I don't know if you've seen it, but whenever I'm spending a certain certain amount of money, receiving a certain amount of money, I keep being asked to provide documents uh, and prove where this money's come from. I've, uh, more recently, I'm having to supply sample uh, examples of the contracts between the companies who are paying me. I don't know if that's new. Did I not even tell you that? No, I've not heard that. Yes, yeah, so any significant sponsor, when I receive a uh, an invoice being paid by them, that gets put on hold, and I get exa- I get asked to send both the invoice and the contract. And a lot of this ties into to anti-money laundering, to know your customer, all these different regulations that the bank has to try to avoid doing money laundering. But it's funny because if you look at, you know, over the past, call it 20 years, they paid hundreds of billions of dollars in fines for money laundering, <laughs> money laundering. <laughs> uh, often knowingly, right? Yeah. So it's like that that's part of the whole, construct, you know, kind of flawed system that there are groups that do money laundering. But then on the on the average person who's just trying to run a business, you're getting all your stuff totally surveilled. And in the United States, you know, we have the Bank Secrecy Act. So if you could just come in with $10,000 and like, you know, give it to the bank, they'll be like, well, where did this come from? We have to report this to the government. And that that's a limit that never goes up with inflation. So back when that was put in place like 50 years ago or whatever the date was, that was a much higher amount of money. Uh, but because they never increased it with inflation, 10,000 is not what it used to be. I mean, you, you could have sold a car and you're just putting money in the bank from it. And they want to know exactly where you got it and, and what this, and they report it. So basically, people don't really have any expectation of privacy when they're using this gigantic permission system. Yeah, uh, I, I don't. I think a lot of people have given up the idea of privacy yeah. now. And I think it's really good and important that Bitcoiners push it. But there, I think I think we've seen people come used to the fact that their data is getting hacked, uh, the bank has everything, access to everything. I think when we hear about our phones being surveilled, I think there's just this... Uh, massive kind of expectation that just happens and people are just like, oh. huh. And we put up with it in environments that are benign. Yeah. Right? So if you live in the United States or Norway or whatever, you're, you're less concerned about that than if you're living in Russia or if you're, you know, you're just living in, in more authoritarian countries. But even we've we even seen it, you know, to some extent encroaching in developed countries like we saw in, in Canada, for example. You had arbitrary bank freezes, things like that, that it's separate from the lawful process, freezing them, like a judge said, for reasons X, Y, Z, we're going to freeze this until, you know, this gets sorted out, like someone stole money and you want, it's, it's going around court order and just freezing it unilaterally. I'm pleased to welcome my new sponsor, Ledin, to the podcast. Now from savings accounts to personal loans and even mortgages, Ledin's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of holding today without selling their Bitcoin. With the recent events in the lender market, Ledin demonstrated that their robust risk management strategy was the right approach. They don't actively trade or invest in DeFi yield generation and have experienced zero losses as a result of their strategy. Ledin only supports Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. 
They're also dedicated to transparency and are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation, which they re-verify every six months. With multilingual support on standby 24-7, Ledin is there to support all your needs. And not only Ledin are a sponsor, I am also a customer of theirs now. I am using their services. So if you want to find out more, please head over to Ledin.io, which is L-E-D-N.io. Next up, it's the Pacific Bitcoin Conference, hosted by Swan Bitcoin on November the 10th and 11th this year in sunny Los Angeles. Now, I've known Corey, Yan, and Brady for years, and they've been pulling out all the stops to make the Pacific Bitcoin Conference a celebration of the Bitcoin community. I'm going to be emceeing the conference alongside my friends Natalie Brunel and Stefan Nevera, and there's going to be an incredible lineup of speakers, including Lynn Alden, Alex Gladstein, and Preston Pish. Now, Pacific Bitcoin is going to be the right mix of education and good fun with unique experiences. They've got a surfing simulator and loaded with other events and parties before and after the event. They're bringing the brightest minds in Bitcoin to discuss a range of topics from macro to nation estate adoption, mining and lightning. And you're not going to want to miss this inaugural Pacific Bitcoin conference. I know it's going to be a special event. Now, Swan are offering a massive 20% discount to listeners of the show. Just go to PacificBitcoin.com and use the code PETER at checkout. That is P-A-C-I-F-I-C-B-I-T-C-O-I-N.com and use the code PETER. Next up, it is Ledger. Now, recent events have highlighted just how important self-custody is. And Ledger is the smartest and easiest way for you as a Bitcoiner to take control of your Bitcoin and the world's most popular hardware wallet just got better. Ledger have recently announced the launch of the new Nano S+. The larger screen makes it easier to manage and verify your Bitcoin transactions, and the Nano S+, maintains the same high level of security as all other Ledger products. Now, I have been a Ledger customer since 2017, and I absolutely love the S+. Now, if you want to find out more, if you want to check this out, if you want to purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to shop.ledger.com, which is S-H-O-P, dot l-e-d-g-e-r dot com also today we have big casino so they are now running a very cool competition where you can join me at the north london derby arsenal v tottenham hopefully to see arsenal absolutely spank tottenham now they have created a bitcoin box at the emirates stadium and they're going to be giving away two tickets to the match it's on october the first and to find out how to enter just check out their pin tweet at twitter.com forward slash bit casino io That is twitter.com forward slash B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O-I-O. Also, please remember to gamble responsibly. I'm bullish on Proton, by the way, as a company. I don't know if you use Proton now, and you maybe wouldn't say because that would be giving up some privacy. (laughs) But they've uh, expanded their tools recently, so they've now got uh, a VPN they recently added. They've got the equivalent of a uh, Google Drive, and I think they've added a calendar, haven't they, as well? I've not seen that. Yeah. And it, they've had like a whole update, like a facelift. It looks really good. Very bullish on Proton as a company, by the way, just as a side thing. Okay, so going back to Bitcoin, if we were going to design the ultimate payment network, how how close do you think we're getting there with Bitcoin? I think now that Lightning is usable and liquid and increasingly developed, uh, I think we're getting pretty close. I think we need we still need better, you know, we still need years of development to make it better and better. But basically, it's it's turning into a full stack network. And so if we go back to, you know, our current systems layered approach, right? We don't all use Fedwire to buy things with. We use these layers on top and then they settle with things like Fedwire. So is Fedwire like the the base chain? Yes. Okay. And so when we look at Bitcoin and Lightning, Bitcoin obviously has limits 
on how much transactions can happen. And then also they're pretty slow. And so that's fine in some circumstances, but it's generally not a good thing for a billion people to buy coffees with, right? It's, there's not enough throughput. And you know, if you're doing an in-person transaction, if they want to wait at least for confirmation time, they're going to be waiting for a while. Yeah, sorry, Roger Vitt. It's just... Uh... We're not going to be doing this on the base chain. But there are some important characteristics of the base chain that make Lightning work. We have to create the best, hardest money first for the layer on top. Yes, Lightning only works because the base chain works. Yeah. And so the, some of the initial designs of how to increase throughput were like, okay, we'll just add block size and block times. But then the problem is that individual nodes become so hard to run that you basically need to be a data center. You need like into like enterprise grade bandwidth and storage to run a, a node. You basically turn into Visa, yeah. right? So if you, if you increase that way, that's a problem. So the Bitcoin stack has instead gone vertical and said, look, we're going to keep the nodes small. Even if we try to change them, we can't because you can't just push updates to users. They, they try the whole block size war. And so you have small blocks, small bandwidth, limited number of transactions, which is actually similar in size to Fed, Fedwire's number of transactions. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's it's very similar to the size of Fedwire. But then on top of that, you can have an arbitrary number of different transactions. You could uh, just use fully custodial ones. Like if you use Cash App and you want to send Bitcoin to someone else, you can do that. But Lightning is interesting because it's you can still use it peer-to-peer while still getting that bigger throughput. So basically it's channel-based instead of broadcast-based. And of course, Bit- Bitcoiners know this, but I think the broader investment community is still very unaware of how Lightning works. Yeah, I think you should just dig into explaining what channel versus broadcast based is. So if you think about it, broadcast is extremely inefficient, right? So with Bitcoin, every time you do a transaction, that that you know propagates around the entire network. Thousands of different nodes record that for the rest of human civilization or however long Bitcoin lasts. Do you want every coffee transaction is you know, does that is that a coffee transaction so important that it needs to be like part of like global ledger? Um, imagine if you, every time you send an email, every email like server in the world had to like agree that this email was sent. Yeah. That'd be grossly inefficient for billions of emails. And so instead channel based says, okay, so we're going to open a channel, um, with a base layer transaction. And then this channel is now funded. And then you can send individual payments over that. And the software keeps track of that. And at any time, you can settle that back down to the base chain. So it's not based on debt or trust, unlike, say, a bar tab. But a bar tab is a common analogy. Imagine if you open a bar tab. So you have a moment of friction when you get your card out and you open the bar tab. And then every time for the rest There's of no the... friction. No, yeah. I'll go straight in there. <laughs> Originally, there was. Originally. Yeah. So then you can keep doing payments over the, over the whole night. Yeah. And then, you know, the eventually at the end of the day, you settled it. Yeah. And so basically Lightning is doing that on Bitcoin, but it's all contract-based. So it's not, it's not trust. You're not trusting the other person. Um, you're only trusting the code itself. And so that's, it solves multiple problems. One is that, you know, you can, you can scale far more payments without scaling the base layer. And then number two, you can have a far more private and fast uh, type of transaction. Lightning is basically happens in split seconds rather than, you know, you have to wait for, you know, 10-minute average confirmation times. So for anyone who uses Lightning in practice, you have your wallet on your phone and you can send money uh, and receive money instantly. We do get some inherent uh, privacy benefits with the Lightning network, which maybe we don't have on the base chain. In part because it's not broadcast to the whole network. Yeah. Uh, especially the sender 
has has some privacy benefits. And I think that's that's still one of the areas of contention, figure out how to make it more private because there's always it's always a cat and mouse game. There's surveillance companies that can open a bunch of nodes and then try to, you know, uh, they, as they're routing payments around the network, uh, ironically contributing to the network, they're also trying to surveil, trying to figure out where points are going. Um, but it is much better inherent privacy than the base layer and can be used in a very private way. And I think it, it keeps getting better over time in terms of privacy. Have you, uh, as part of your paper, uh, looked at the growth of uh, the number of payments on the Lightning Network and compared that to, say, the base chain? And, ha you know, have we seen over time that, like, there are transactions that ha would have originally been on the base chain that are moving to Lightning? So Arcane Research published a really good report on that. Um, uh, it was, I believe it was April of this year. Uh, I actually wrote the forward to that, um, but they 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 basically have this whole large document of, of tremendous research, and they try to estimate they because the thing about the Lightning Network is unlike the base layer, there's no like firm number you can go to and say this is the number of payments. Okay, you have to piece it together because there's some degree of privacy, so you're trying to piece it together and come up with a rough number of payments. So they've actually found that payments have actually increased even more than you think looking at uh, public capacity on the Lightning Network. So you've had hundreds of percent increase in lightning payments over the past 12 to 18 months. Wow. Yeah. It, it's been a very fast growing. And then especially if you um, factor out like exchange withdrawals and things like that, actual peer to, like actual payments to merchants, they have a pretty high estimate for how that is. Yeah, because Kraken have integrated lightning, haven't they? Yeah. Have, is it CoinFloor, are they the other ones? Mm, I would imagine. CoinFloor wouldn't surprise me. It's Obi, isn't it? Or it was Obi. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I was chatting to Pete Rizzo yesterday and we were talking about narratives. Every cycle has a narrative. And I I would like to see over the next couple of years Lightning to be another narrative and get back into the spending. And I know some people like hodl, hodl only, but um, we have the Lightning that we're there to be used. We want it to be used. I, I'm a big supporter in the idea of uh, promoting that over the next few years and really pushing the Lightning Network because I got a, I got to see a glimpse of it in El Salvador. And I always talk about this one specific trip because I've been five, six times now. And what used to happen, I'd get to the airport and I'd land and I'd get out a couple of hundred dollars and head down to Zonte and that would pretty much last me. Um, and then I think on one of the trips, I uh, didn't get the money out of the airport. I can't remember why. And um, But I went to the Bitcoin ATM in Zonte and uh, sent some Bitcoin and withdrew some dollars. And then the last trip I went, I didn't do either. I just... Everyone, everybody supports Lightning. So I didn't have any dollars. I didn't need any dollars. Whether I went to dinner or whether I went to the shop or whether I went for a beer, whatever I did, I could pay for everything on the Lightning Network. And that was super interesting because it just, as an experience, it was like, this is so easy. I don't even have to think. I just turn up. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. How was the user experience when using it in that, that amount? Brilliant. Because in that experience, all I'm buying are things that are... Um, less than $100. So if I'm going to Enzo's for coffee, I'm spending $10, $15. Even if I'm going for dinner, I'm still only probably spending $40, $50. And there's nothing I'm buying over $50, right? So the experience was great. And, and you know, even when we went into the capital, when we would go to Starbucks and try, I mean, Starbucks was seamless. McDonald's was a little bit harder. But I was thinking when I got back to the UK, I was like wondering how this would be the same or even here in the US, but my, my bigger problem here is my average purchases on the cars are gonna be higher. Like you can go to a dinner and you could spend three, $400, $500, and I'm not sure the Lightning Network's gonna be able to handle that every time. 
you know, I've, I've had history uh, difficulty in the past with certain transactions. When you start to get near 100 $150, $200, it gets a bit harder. But the experience there, it just worked. Everywhere I went, pretty much accepted it. And I didn't have to think about, I just didn't have to think about money. I loved it. And that was a real game changer for me in terms of, you know, thinking about how the Lightning Network works and how useful it is, is that traveling from place to place and having that one single currency and not having to think about exchange rates or, you know, not having to think about anything. Like even, because it is quite expensive as well when you're traveling to withdraw money or make payments on your card. Each time you're making a payment, you're paying one to two dollars just in a fee. And that's a fee I'm paying on top of the fees, the middlemen fees we've talked yes. about in the past. So you have to think about, oh, well, I should withdraw some money. That's why I used to get a lot out at the bank to begin with, just to avoid all those fees. But it was, I think it was brilliant. I loved it. And I think you put a, you put a dollar stable coin on that network. That's a massive game changer. That's a huge combination because it's both a way to transfer Bitcoins around. That's obviously the initial yeah. purpose. But then, yeah, in theory, you can then put other assets on it. And so we've already seen that. Uh, to some extent with Strike, yep. uh, basically the, the key insight that you can use this as a, a payments network in addition, even if you don't care about holding the unit. You can you can convert fiat currency to Bitcoin, send it over Lightning, convert it back to fiat currency. And yes, if you, if you make a stable coin version of that right on Lightning, you can make that potentially even more seamless. And to your point about liquidity, so liquidity is one of those things that's getting better over time. If you try to, you know, the, the, it can't, you know, Lightning was initially proposed white paper back 2015, 2016. Original implementations came out early 2018. If you tried to send money super early on, there were much fewer connections and they were smaller connections. It was actually pretty hard to send a meaningful dollar value reliably. Um, but then years of more people joining the network, channels channels getting bigger and more connected makes the higher and higher payment thresholds work. And I think one of the reasons it's dismissed is because it's so small and and quote unquote slow growing. It's not like you can just flip a switch and then you have this like billion dollar DeFi casino, right? It's it's this slow grind up. And I think that's why it's it's not super interesting to someone who makes one wants to make one, money very quickly or who doesn't look at things that are worth less than a billion dollars. And I think that's a big mistake because the way this is designed, there's no other way than to start slow. Yes. Because it's channel by channel and at first it's, 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 well, one, it's the developers themselves. And then two, it's like people that really want it to work and that will like help make it work. You know, they're using it to build it out. It's like people using machetes to cut through the jungle to make like the initial roads so that later like better roads can be built kind of. So it was built channel by channel painstakingly. And after two, three years of that, now we're kind of at critical mass. You said you can do, you can do $1,500 payments, no problem uh, on a frequent basis. Yeah. And that's, that wasn't the case, you know, two, three years ago. And I think when we look five years out, I think we're going to see much bigger payments become the norm or become like uh, sending much bigger payments will be much easier in the Lightning Network. I just pulled up that um, arcane research and they said in the last year, the number of payments has doubled and the value of those payments up by over 400%. So it's... So what, what's the average value of a... Does it say? It doesn't say that. Huh. I, don't, I think it's, it's, it's quite hard to glean some of that information, I think. Yeah, so the interesting thing about um, the El Salvador thing is that uh, it went from using Lightning being a novelty to being a uh, uh, benefit to me. So, for example, we, you know, in my football club, we've, we accept Lightning payments. You can come in, you can buy your beer or your entry fee and Lightning, and, and that's cool, and we accept it also on our website. But I 
most of the times when I see an option on a website to buy some of Bitcoin, I'm a bit like Danny. I, like, I don't always want to do it because I want to hodl my Bitcoin. I want to spend my fiat because it, because otherwise I, I would be converting that to Bitcoin. So, um, But the thing about what happened in El Salvador is actually it was the ease of use that made me not even think about using fiat. It made me happy to use the Lightning Network. It wasn't just a novelty going, oh, you know, because we have people come down the club and they want to spend their Bitcoin. And sometimes I think it's maybe a novelty, you know, maybe other reasons for their personal privacy. But, you know, when it gets to the point where it just makes life easier, um, that I'm going to use it more. So that was, a, that was a really interesting experience. You should probably go and see it sometime. I would like to. Yeah. And, and to that point about, you know, using it, it's one of those things like, People in developed countries, they, they never wake up and or they most of them don't wake up and think I have a payments problem. It's really hard yeah. for me to make payments. In the developing world, that's that's generally a much bigger problem. Yeah. And lightning opens up interesting things and Bitcoin in general opens up interesting things. I mean, if you're a programmer in a country and you you can now get international payments directly from them without going through that their country's banking system. It's basically peer-to-peer finance. Mm. And then they have a, a unit that is hard. It is harder than their local currency. So one, it basically, it connects global labor, global work, global productivity in a way that that didn't exist before. Um, and number two, I think that this is where in many cases store of value will precede medium exchange in the sense that, you know, I, I, also, I also, just like you, don't necessarily want to spend a ton of Bitcoin. I want to hold Bitcoin. Mm. I'd rather spend dollars because they, they go down over time. Um, and when we add things like there's frictions, right? So there's, there's, you know, technically, if you if you spend Bitcoin of Lightning Network, you that's a taxable event. You you've basically now have tax uh, capital gain taxes to pay, and they're they're challenging to record, and it's just that's you know. I just don't. It's, I don't care. <laughs> Honestly, I don't. I probably if, shouldn't say. That. I know. I just don't care. Like I'll 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 have that argument with. Uh, I'll have that argument with the tax man in the UK. It's just like I'm not going to record every one of these, and I'm just not doing it. Like just. I'll find me. I'll pay the fine. It'll be quicker. Fuck that. I'm not doing it. I'm not. That's why I think the bill from Senator Gillibrand and uh, Senator Lummis was great because they want, I think it was $600, they said so. it, which seems like a good number. And also they put in the clause for inflation, which I thought was smart. Yes. And, and I think these are good for adoption over time. And I think it's also that when someone has a small percentage of their money in Bitcoin, they don't necessarily want to spend any. There are people that have been in Bitcoin for five, 10 years, and Bitcoin's a pretty big percentage of their net worth, and then they want to spend some of it. And the more merchants that accept Bitcoin, that strengthens the network even for people that are not spending it because it makes it more censorship resistant. If, if, if theoretically no one accepted Bitcoin, and all we could ever do with our Bitcoin is go back to an exchange and put it back into fiat currency, that wouldn't be super valuable because you know, if governments didn't want that, they could just cut off exchanges. Uh, you saw in Canada, I mean, if, if certain addresses are coming in, they can try to blacklist them. Mm-hmm. If, if you have a few points of conversion uh, as your only way to actually, you know, actualize that as money, uh, that's not great. But if more merchants accept it, even for people that are just hodling it, it's inherently a more valuable network now because you have the optionality. Yeah. You know, part, when you're holding Bitcoin, what you're holding is the optionality to one day spend it wherever you want without anyone's permission. And so the more permissionless and the more widely accepted that unit is, and it, it, whether or not the merchant accepts Bitcoins and holds them, or if they accept Bitcoins and use the software to immediately turn them into dollars or pesos or whatever, that's fine. The fact that you can go to countries around the world and directly spend your Bitcoin makes that Bitcoin more fundamentally useful. 
This show is brought to you by BCB Group. BCB Group provide online business banking services for companies in the Bitcoin industry. And yes, I am a customer of BCB too. They heard about my difficulty with finding a payment services provider that understands Bitcoin and reached out to me. Now, BCB's clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds, and miners active in the UK and Europe, but they are expanding globally. They have an amazing network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients and all supported currencies. Now, listen, I know some of you have had some trouble with this, like me. And if you are looking for a banking provider who understands and supports Bitcoin companies rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you want to become a BCB customer. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter. Next up is my new sponsor, Wasabi who I will be now using to make sure my Bitcoin is private and I'm very excited about using their software. With the release of Wasabi 2.0, Bitcoin privacy is now effortless as the wallet has introduced privacy by default. Now, rather than having to choose to coin join, this can all be done automatically. So you just need to receive your Bitcoin, wait for the coin join, and then you can spend freely. All the magic happens automatically in the background, which is a massive UX improvement. You also get additional privacy through Tor integration into Wasabi 2.0, so you don't leak your IP address. And there are no more minimum denominations, so you can coin join any amount, and there's no more change. So any amount you receive from a coin join is private. Privacy is something I've been taking more seriously recently. And with Wasabi 2.0, this has made it so much easier. So definitely go and check it out. If you want to find out more, please head over to wasabiwallet.io, which is W-A-S-A-B-I-W-A-L-L-E-T dot I-O. Next up, it's Gemini, who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin, but I'm only ever buying. Come on, we're hodlers. We're not sellers. I'm also using the Gemini app for buying the dips, and I've been buying a lot of those recently. And I've also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. Both the app and the website make buying and selling Bitcoin super easy. And Gemini has invested in building industry-leading security since day one. Gemini are now also running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD, which is G-E-M-I-N-I.com forward slash WBD. Also today, we have my new sponsor, the Texas Blockchain Council. Now, on November the 17th and 18th, the Texas Blockchain Council are putting on the Texas Blockchain Summit in Bitcoin country, Austin, Texas. Now, you know how much I love out there. I'm going to be attending. The event is two days of thought leadership for Bitcoin. Day one is all that any Texas Bitcoin miner could ask for. Top Bitcoin CEOs and their teams will be hanging out in Austin. And day two has top policy leaders from the US, both federal and state legislators, senators, House of Representatives, CFTC commissioners. What more could you ask for? Yes, I'm not just promoting this. I'll be attending the event in Austin, hanging out with my Texas Bitcoin buddies and interviewing someone very important on stage. So make sure you book your ticket, come to the event, let's hang out. To find out more, head over to texasblockchainsummit.org and use the discount code PETERMC20 for a 20% discount at checkout and let them know that I sent you. This offer is valid until the end of October. I, I also like the fact that Bitcoin just grows at its own pace. <laughs> you know, there's, there's not like a massive rush for Bitcoin. It's not like a, you know, if you have a uh, company and they've raised finance, um, you know, series A, series B, every time they've got to spend that money. The idea is spend that money and chase growth. Grow as quickly and fast as you can. 
That just doesn't really happen with Bitcoin. Bitcoin just grows its, it, at its own pace, but it does keep growing, keeps growing. Yeah, when you look at Bitcoin-focused startups or Bitcoin-only startups, and yeah. then you look at the broad crypto startups, Bitcoin startups tend to be very utilitarian. It's, it's a very you know low speculation to utility ratio, right? They're mostly about how can we make better wallets? How can we make better payment solutions? How can we make you know uh, better user experience as money? Uh, and, or, you know, that's the type of thing we're seeing more and more of where it's not, you know, mostly about leverage or your trading and things like that. It's about how to make Bitcoin better money. And money is one of those things where not everyone realizes they need permissionless money right now. Um, but I think more people around the world, either, either due to inflation, they want inflation resistant money. That doesn't mean Bitcoin goes up the exact moment inflation goes up, but it means that over the long arc of time, that the supply is not increasing at an arbitrary rate. So they want more of that. And then number two, they want to be able to spend money uh, without no one being able to say no to them. And, you know... Trudeau resistant money. Yeah. But anyone resistant money. And, and it's one of those things, I mean, even people that say agree with that, if, if they like Trudeau, maybe they hate the next guy. Mm -hmm. And they don't want that next guy to have the power. So it's about, you don't want anyone to have the power. And in a world where peer-to-peer -peer money does not really exist. So, if, you know, prior to Bitcoin, prior to, prior to the technologies we have now, if I want to send money to a friend in Japan, how do I do it? I had the exact same problems. When we went out to do the Car Palace interview, um, we hired a local uh, cameraman to, to come and shoot the, the interview. And then afterwards, he sent me his bank details to pay him. And my bank could not connect to his bank. Every way we tried to send him money, they were just saying, like, because one of the things is, is like, most of the time when you send him money, like, domestically, it's really easy. Here's my sort code, and here's my bank account number in the UK. And then even internationally, sometimes you've got, you know, your IBAN number, whatever. But when you do some of these international payments, they have different formats for, say, addresses. So give me the address, and there's no clear consistent formatting and we couldn't get it to work we couldn't do it through paypal he actually got paid in bitcoin that was that was like one of the first times where i had to do it because of a banking problem yes and that's and that's a logistics problem and that's all sorts of problems and then it's worse if you're in an authoritarian country yeah and so that's why we see for example before he's arrested putin's opposition used to use bitcoin because his bank accounts are always frozen yeah. And then ironically, then then they go back and unfreeze the bank accounts because they're like, well, we'd rather actually see the money and see what he's doing with it rather than him going through Bitcoin. <laughs> so around the world, basically, you know, the Human Rights uh, you know, Foundation uses Bitcoin quite significantly in their in their you know programs. And that's why they fund things like privacy techniques. Um, so it, it's basically having that censorship resistant payments technology is super valuable. And so going back to what I was saying before, if I wanted to send money to someone in Japan, I have to go through these permissioned entities, even if it works, right? I, I'm going through permissioned entities, banks. You know, I have to. I go to my bank. My bank sends it to their bank. Uh, since it's international, central banks are implicitly involved. It's basically it's bank to bank to bank system. And other than like stuffing cash in an envelope or something like that, there's really no way to peer to peer send money. And with Bitcoin, now peer to peer money exists. And what's interesting about that is that opens up all sorts of, that's a Pandora's box for government regulators. That's why they're still str wrestling with this. Because if you're trying to do like regulations on who can send who to money to who, you only need to enforce it on banks. You know, in, in the United States, it's a few thousand entities. They're highly regulated. We, you know, it's easy to tell the banks what they have to do. You have to, you have to get this information. You can't send it to these sources, X, Y, Z. 
Uh, if this happens, report it to us every time. Whereas once technology exists that allows individuals to send money to other individuals, that's very hard for governments to block or enforce because the number of enforcement points are in the millions instead of the thousands. And so it basically is Pandora's box. And of course, a, a very, very, very authoritarian countries can try, but even then it just happens. It's kind of like in Venezuela or other countries, you're not supposed to use dollars. I mean, in many countries, using dollars is illegal and they still will use dollars. And similarly, in many countries, they'll say accepting Bitcoin is illegal. And they're like, well, yeah, I'm doing it anyway. So have fun like uh, telling millions of people they can't accept it. That, that's where it gets challenging to enforce. Are there any limitations you noticed doing your research for this paper? One is that liquidity issue, okay. uh, that it just took time to build up liquidity. And as you point out, there's, there's still insufficient liquidity if you wanted to reliably send large payments. Um, so that that's a limitation. Um, then there's still, I mean, Lightning Network's like a hot network, right? So if you're if you're on the Lightning Network, you wanna you wanna be online, right? It's not like you can just, you know, with Bitcoin, you can just be in cold storage and and you know someone can send, you know, payment to you and you don't have to you don't as a receiver you don't have to interact in any way, and so Lightning is inherently a more interactive, more complex experience, um, unless you can, as we've seen in, in wallets and things like that, increasingly obfuscate that. So one risk is that it can become too custodial because often the easiest, easiest experiences will be custodial. Um, and, and so I think that's a limitation. You want to have more and more tools to make it increasingly easy to mm. use it. And we see, for example, Blockstream with, with Greenlight, you know, basically you can put some of the infrastructure to run it in the cloud while the user still has the keys. So there, there are increasing ways to make it very easy to operate while the user still has, you know, ultimately the, the, the say. Um, what about the vol volatility? We covered this in our last show, but just for people who may have not listened to that and just trying to understand the Lightning Network, yeah, how much of a concern is, not a concern, but like what is the issue with volatility here? So I think, so I separate two phases of expected Bitcoin volatility. Yeah. So any, any, so Bitcoin, when it was invented, is this brand new thing. And the market has to figure out how to price this thing. Hmm. And, you know, originally it was a couple of cypherpunks. They barely had a price. And then it was, you know, People that want to buy drugs online, there are like, uh, you know, Austrian economics. You know, all these pool, all these new pools of people were like, wait a second, what is this thing? Yeah. And then like the Human Rights Foundation got, you know, like human rights activists get into it. And like multiple groups of people realize it solves a problem that they have. And it could be a very different problems. Some people want the store of value problem solved. Some people want the medium of exchange problem solved. Um, uh, there's all these different problems that it's being solved. But it's, it's with... Upward volatility. So if, if a lot of new people come to the network, the price goes up very rapidly. Any that's by definition volatility. It's it's the volatility that people like. It's yeah. it's upward volatility, but that is a type of upward volatility. It's inevitable. If you go from zero to trillions of dollars in market capitalization, by definition, you're volatile. And then with upward volatility comes speculation, leverage, overexuberance, and then you're gonna have massive pullbacks. And so there's really no other way around it. When people say Bitcoin is not workable because it's too volatile, they're basically saying that no no new private money can ever work because you can't just start at a $20 yeah. trillion dollar market capitalization. Yeah. Uh, and so if you're going from nothing to whatever total adjustable market you're going to reach, you're going to be volatile. So I separate the, you know, the first handful of decades. We don't know how long it's going to take. We don't know for sure it's going to be successful. We don't know the quote unquote end game of where this is going, but you know, we can at least infer, assuming 
Bitcoin continues to be successful, consuming it continues to take market share, assuming that the adoption pattern continues, eventually it reaches some steady state. You know, how big is that? There's all these different estimates for how, is it as big as gold? Is it twice as big as a gold? Is it hyper-Bitcoinization? You know, whatever steady state it kind of reaches, that's when you'd expect it to be less volatile than it is now. There will still be some volatility because essentially at that point, it's, you know, it's stable, but other things are volatile. I mean, oil is volatile. Other things are volatile. Um, but you don't have that huge, there's, there's less a reason to leverage it up tremendously when it's a mature asset that most people already hold. So right now, because it's this more, it's more speculative asset, it's 13 years old, people are debating, is it, you know, is it, what's the government going to do when it's five times bigger? Uh, what does this mean? What is this other competitor? There's all these things, the market is doing all this stuff and then people are leveraging it. So it's going to be volatile in the near term. And I think that does slow down its medium of exchange usage for a lot of people. Um, but I think that that's solved itself over time as more people decide that they want to hold it despite the volatility because they look at the long-term properties of it. And then once they hold a ton of it, you know, eventually they might want to spend some of it. Yeah. And have you, well, I, I would definitely be spending more if I held a ton of it. Danny's got loads. Danny's one of the richest Bitcoiners I know. Yeah. He's always, flex, always flexing his new watches. <laughs> um, are there any other rival layer two systems that are worth considering that, uh, that people are working on? Well, there are other layer twos. I mean, Liquid uh, is a pretty well-known layer two. But do you think that's a rival to the I Lightning Network? No, it's, it's different. No. Lightning is pretty much on its own in terms of fast medium exchange transactions. That's probably a good thing. Yes. If you had fractured, yeah, that's, and you've seen that in other non-Bitcoin crypto stuff, you see fractured layer two ecosystems and you get liquidity problems. If there were multiple right. separate Lightning Networks, then any, any currently liquidity constraints you have now would be worse um, because they're not interoperable. Um, and so that that's kind of a, a a good thing that there's really, it's it's solidified towards one. Now, there's still different implementations and, th and th that still gives tensions because one implementation might have something that they want the other implementations to do yeah. and they don't do it. And so there's there's always going to be contention. So that's, that is a challenge of the network. Um, but it is great that multiple things uh, interact. Whereas something like Liquid, it serves a very different purpose, and and in, for example, Blockstream is active in both. I uh -huh. mean, so they're not they're not direct competitors. Right. Okay. And then, are there any specific regulatory issues with Lightning that we need to think about? Is there any pressure that needs to be put on to regulators to support Lightning? We talked about transaction taxing, which is annoying. But is there anything else in regard to that? So the tax is a big issue. Um, accounting, basically, so that merchants can you know keep track of it, say, in dollars, and then know how to know how to pay taxes. And also, it, it opens up money transmitter, you know, license issues. Basically, if you're sending money around, especially in a channel-based thing, and then especially if you're a custodian, if you're a custodian of money. So currently, what we see in the regulatory landscape, and I'm by no means a, a, a lawyer on this, so that, that'd actually be a really good show in and of itself, is having the lawyer go through Bitcoin and Lightning regulatory landscape. But generally, if you're custodian someone's funds, there's a lot more limitations you have. You're going to have trouble expanding internationally. You're going to have trouble in certain states. It's just challenges. Whereas if you have non-custodial solutions, what you're essentially just doing is you're building open source software that people can choose to use. Um, and that, you know, maybe you're operating a, a lightning node and you're routing liquidity for them, um, but you're not doing any, any sort of custodial thing with customer funds. So there's generally less regulatory burden. But we've even seen, for example, like, uh, and this is old news now, but the infrastructure bill where it was poorly worded in such a way that like a Bitcoin miner 
could be considered someone who's transferring money. Right. And you could conceivably have that with like lightning nodes, that if you're transmitting value, so badly, badly written regulation or even maliciously badly written, like it was purposely vague and then therefore enforceable, that is a potential risk and threat vector for, for Bitcoin as a whole. But then it goes back to the whole enforcement point question. You know, if, if, if it's open source peer-to-peer software, how hard is that to enforce if it's widely used? Hmm. Okay, and then look into the future. Um, is there anything coming to Lightning that's particularly exciting you? I think for me, the number one thing is just increased liquidity and adoption. Okay. Because just making the Lightning Network work better is the biggest thing. Okay. Um, I'm always happy to see privacy improvements. Um, I think uh, we, we just, just saw the launch of Fetty. Uh, you know, they, they basically want to bring federated charming mints. This is OB. Yes. Yes. We get, uh, we've got him coming on the show, right? Yeah, in Bedford. Huh. And like I, I for example, I advise Ego Death Capital, which is Jeff Booth's, uh, and we invested in, in, in Fetty. What, in what excites you about Fetty? Uh, it, one, that it's good for privacy. It, it, you know, shall, we, shall we explain what it is? So Federated Chalmin Mints, basically it uses blind signatures, which is pretty old technology actually, um, so that you basically can make a type of custodian where even the custodian doesn't know how much funds you have or necessarily even who you are. Um, uh, but instead it uses cryptography um, to basically manage that. So people deposit a Bitcoin, they get an e-cash token and it uses blind signatures. So other users don't know how much you have or who you are and even the custodian doesn't. Um, now you still have custodial risk. So what then Fetty can do is make a federated, like a multi-sig that runs the custodian. So you'd have to have the majority of the federation be either uh, corrupt or in some way, you know, impacted by the government. What is what is the use case for this? What is can you t- discuss a specific example where someone would use a federated mint? An example would be kind of like the Bitcoin Beach Wallet, okay. where if you want to have a small community uh, use Lightning and they want to have a seamless experience and they want to not have some foreign entity custody their money, uh, and not every user maybe uh, wants to have self custodial Lightning for one reason or another, you can have the community custody it. And they can still have privacy among themselves, and you can have a, you can have trusted members of that community run the federation that are tech savvy and that are trusted, uh, and that at least you know you, you trust the majority of them not to not to con- conflict the system. Um, even if you're not storing money in it, if you're routing money through it, for example, someone can have a big self custodial Bitcoin cold storage stack, and they can still use one of these federated mints as their, their spending wallet. Hmm. And it's a privacy, it, it kind of increases privacy for them. Because you're basically, it's kind of like you're going into this mixer, right? Hmm. Um, and so I think that can bring both scaling and usability and privacy to the network in some ways. We'll, we'll see how big it gets, right? But I think that's something I'm watching, I'm excited about. Um, I'm also just excited to see more infrastructure build out of, of the place as a whole. Things like I mentioned, like what Blockstream's doing. Uh-huh. Basically ways to make it easier to operate. And then I think lastly, Tarot. Uh, is yes. something. And, and, you know, some people don't like stable coins uh, and they say you should just use Bitcoin. Um, but for a lot of people... They probably live in a privileged, yes. stable, yes. Uh, economically stable relative to other places. Yeah, there is a some, someone from Argentina, I think, phrased it best. He's like, I use local currency for like this month's spending, but I don't want to hold that long term because it, it's going down by like double digits every month. So then for like multi-month savings... I like stable coins. And then for multi-year savings, he likes Bitcoin. 
Perfect. When I was in Venezuela with Crypto Bastardo, and he he told me I keep he just said I keep all my money in Bitcoin. He said even when the price of Bitcoin crashes, I'm still outperforming the Bolivar. So he said all he does is he just he holds Bitcoin, and then all he does is he transfers out the Bolivars he needs for the week every week, and that's how he lives. So I think these people, I think I think this is fine because these are. Technology aware and technology comfortable people, maybe almost in middle class in the zones they're in, but there are there are people in some places who who are you know, Alex Gladstein talked about them and said they literally need dollars to survive, and there's too much risk for them holding Bitcoin and the price crashing and then not being able to feed their family. So I think we have to be a bit realistic about this. And also, even if you're in developed countries and you want to send, say, you want to use the latent network. Uh, and say there's a merchant that, you know, because of the work people are doing, more merchants are accepting it. Yeah. Um, maybe you want to pay in dollars. Maybe you don't want to have a taxable gain. Um, but maybe you want to have a more permissionless experience than the bank. Now, you're still relying on the issuer of that stable coin, right, to not just rug pull, right? So, uh-huh. so there's still a centralized hub there. But in your everyday peer-to-peer interaction, for the most part, you have a more permissionless experience or permission minimized experience because it's not Bitcoin, it's a stable coin compared to the banking system. So I, I do think that for, for both developed and developing countries, being able to route dollars on Bitcoin is super useful. And there's multiple ways to do that. You can just have the endpoints do it in a custodial way um, uh, and then use Lightning as the intermediary, or you can then introduce stable coins directly on on Lightning, which, you know, there's multiple ways this can go. And I'm, I'm pretty bullish on the idea of Lightning being useful as a payments network in addition to just sending around Bitcoins. Yeah. I think we need to cover Lightning a bit more, Danny. I agree. we got to do a few more shows on this. Okay, brilliant. How long till the paper's out? So I'm, I'm planning on publishing the paper by early August. So it might be out by the time this interview airs. Fantastic. Well, I will block a day out in my diary to read that. Uh, Lynn, brilliant as ever. Thank you. Thank you so much for this. We will definitely be covering a bit more Lightning on the show. Uh, how should we finish out? Go and subscribe to Lynn's newsletter. She will give me a weird look now and say, don't do this. Go and subscribe. It's brilliant. It's only $200, $199? Yes. It's only $199. It is the most It's the most alpha you're going to get for that much money. Go and sign up. I so LynnAlden.com? Yes. There you go. If you don't do it, don't listen to my show again. Okay, <laughs> bye. Love you, Lynn. Thank you so much. See you later. Thanks. Okay, thank you for listening to What Bitcoin Did. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Lynn. Well, I know you will. Everyone loves Lynn, right? Everyone loves every show I make with her. She is my absolute favorite person to interview. She has an amazing depth of knowledge and is so good at breaking things down, which means I often have those aha moments when talking to her. We're very lucky to have her in Bitcoin. I'm very lucky to have her come on the show so regularly. And if you want to read her article, like I say, it is in the show notes. And make sure you go to her website and you subscribe to her newsletter, which is scandalously cheap. Okay, any questions about this, anything else, please feel free to reach out to me. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Okay, enjoy the rest of your weekend and I will speak to you all next week.